You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning, which is also the text for the sermon. Mark 6, verse 53 to chapter 7, verse 23. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed." The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, when we come to church on Sundays, many of us are looking forward to hearing good news. 
This is good. We want to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we've been going through Mark, we frequently encountered the gospel, the good news. We've seen Jesus Christ as one who encourages and strengthens His people. For instance, remember last week how we saw Jesus walking to the disciples out on the lake and we heard His words, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Wonderful, encouraging words. Well, today we come to a different passage, one that has a different approach, one that is not so obviously good news or encouraging for that matter. And the temptation is for us to say, well, let's just skip over this section. It's very negative. It's very down. And even if somehow there is good news at the end, it's still going to be a hard passage for some people. However, loved ones, this is exactly the advantage of preaching straight through a book. This approach forces us to deal with passages that make us uncomfortable. Passages that we might not otherwise want to deal with. The Word of God challenges us here this morning. And we should think of that not as something bad, not as something evil, but as something good, something helpful. It might make us uncomfortable. It might even be painful. But think of it like going to the doctor. Going to the doctor is sometimes painful. Many times, going to the doctor is uncomfortable. But ultimately, it's for our good. It's for the good of our health that we do that. And remember Paul's words in 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you know, it's not just about us either. Not just about us and our good spiritual health. Dealing with the difficult and the challenging passages in Scripture also helps us. It leads us in getting the full picture of who our God is and who our Savior is. That helps us in knowing Him better so that we can better exalt Him, so that we can be more impressed with Him, so that we can magnify His worth. Ultimately, this morning, we want to come away from this passage in Mark with hearts that have again taken hold of Christ in faith and in awe and in love. So as we turn then to our passage from Mark, we see that there's a thread running through most of these verses. A thread that ties this all together. And that thread has to do with the law of God and the relationship of Jesus to that law. There were men in Jesus' day who considered themselves to be experts on the law of God. Law specialists. And in these verses, we come to see who really is the expert. We'll see Jesus Christ revealed as the law keeper, the law interpreter, and the law maker. Now, we could have taken the last verses of chapter 6 with the passage that we considered last Sunday. However, I wanted to draw out for you that there's also a connection with what we find in chapter 7. 
But before we get to that connection, I mentioned that a lot of this passage is in a minor key. It has a negative, down tone to it. You can't get around that. That's what's here in the Word of God. But that's not really the case with verses 53 to 56 of chapter 6. These verses are different. Now let's briefly look at those verses together. Jesus and His disciples were out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He had come to them walking on the water, as you remember, and the wind died down. The boat's destination had been Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern shore. However, because of the wind, they ended up in Gennesaret, which was on the western shore, opposite direction. And when they landed, right away the crowds were there once again, thronging the Lord Jesus. Wherever he went after this point, Mark tells us, people were bringing the sick to him for healing. didn't matter where he was, the people of the region, they found him and they begged him to heal. And it's readily apparent that he didn't disappoint. Now from this, notice again his compassion for those who have been broken by the effects of sin. Disease and sickness... He encountered those. And and disease and sickness are in this world because of the fall into sin. That's disease and sickness in the the general sense. That's not to say that someone who, who gets sick, it's because they did something wrong or they did something sinful. Disease and sickness are in this world because of the fall into sin that took place in Genesis 3. And the Lord Jesus is beginning to reverse the effects of sin through His healing ministry. This points to his compassion, his love, his mercy for the broken. But it also points beyond to something more significant. It points to the fact that he is the one who will bear the curse of sin for all who believe in him. Isaiah 53 verse 5 declares that it is by his wounds, the wounds of the Messiah, It is by His wounds that we are healed. Whenever He heals the sick, we're reminded and assured of that great and encouraging truth that we have redemption through the cross of Christ. Don't let that escape you here. Don't take it for granted. Don't gloss over it. Rather, see your Savior and embrace Him again with faith, resting in Him. Trusting in Him. Believing that by His wounds, you have been healed. Well, there's more here in these verses. Take a look again at the end of verse 56. The last sentence there. They begged Him to let them touch even the edge of His cloak, and all who touched Him were healed. Now the question we need to ask when we read this is, what's so special about the edge of his cloak that people would want to to touch it? Why wouldn't they touch, say, the middle of his cloak? Or maybe the, the top or the collar? Why the edge? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to the law of God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers 15, verse 37. We'll read verses 37 to 41. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. 
You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them, and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, as we go back to Mark, we know that these tassels commanded in the law of God were also on the edge of Jesus' cloak. People touched them. Why? Because they were easy to touch. They were the easiest part of his attire to reach out and touch. But most importantly for us, they tell us something about Jesus Christ. They tell us that he was obedient to all of God's law, including those ceremonial requirements that applied only to the Jews. Jews were to wear these tassels. We don't have to wear them. These laws have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Jews, however, in that day, they still had to wear those tassels. And they did that so that they would remember the law of God and that they would be obedient to it that they would be consecrated to the Lord their God. In other words, that they would be holy and that they would be set apart for Him. Every Jew before Jesus failed. And that's why God provided the system of sacrifices to atone for sin. But now Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, has come. And He perfectly learns He remembers. He obeys the law of God. He is a perfect law lover and law keeper. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1, the righteous man. He is consistently and completely consecrated to God. Holy, holy, holy. Now it's these tassels through which sick people were being healed. And again, this is another picture of another aspect of our redemption. Isaiah 53.5 says that it is through His wounds that we are healed. That means that the curse of sin is taken away through His suffering and death. Romans 5.19 gives us another aspect of this. Romans 5.19 says that by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. By Christ's obedience to the law of God, We are made righteous. We are healed. And so as you see your Savior here, see one who was perfectly obedient to the law of God. And please listen, loved ones. You need to do that. Because as we're going to go into chapter 7, without Him, and without His perfect obedience, we would be in a world of trouble. Chapter 7 would be nothing but bad news. We need a gospel that includes His perfect law-keeping and His perfect sacrifice for us. And let me illustrate the necessity of that with something that Professor Strange said when he was here with us a few weeks ago. Say you tell one of your kids, I want your room cleaned up by 4 o'clock. And if it's not, there's going to be punishment. Well, 4 o'clock rolls around and... You go to check the room and, well, it's not clean. 
So, being a man or a woman of your word, your child receives punishment. But you know what? That room is still dirty. The room still needs to be cleaned. There not only has to be punishment, something still has to be positively done to get the room cleaned up. Now, there are different ways that you could do that. You could have the child do it himself, or you could do it for him. Now, you see, Jesus Christ bears the curse or the punishment on sin for us. But the good news doesn't stop there. Because He also cleans up the room for us with His perfect obedience. His suffering is given to us, but also His obedience to the law of God. You see, we not only need the cross at the end of His 33 years, of life on this earth. We also need His perfect life. All those 33 years between His birth and the cross. Now as we come to chapter 7, the necessity of all this gets driven home to us quite pointedly, quite sharply. Find the Pharisees and the scribes. We've encountered them before. The rabbinical paparazzi. They follow Jesus around, waiting for Him to slip up, waiting for His disciples to slip up. They came from Jerusalem. These are big shots. A delegation to spy on Jesus and His followers. And as in previous encounters, it doesn't take long for their diligence to be rewarded. The Pharisees held to a tradition, you see, that had become very entrenched. In fact, the tradition had functionally become the same as the law of God. Oh, they they said that there was a difference. They said, oh, this is just our tradition. This isn't the law of God. But when the rubber hit the road, it was basically all the same thing, for all intents and purposes. If you didn't keep the tradition, you were a lawbreaker. And this tradition that we're speaking about, involved a certain custom of washing hands before eating. Now, this might be a sanitary thing to do at any rate, but the Jews had taken it further. This was not about sanitation, not about good health, but about religious fervor. If you were truly serious about serving God, if you really wanted to measure up before God and before people... This is what you needed to do. If you wanted to be a part of that culture, that religious subculture, you got to do this. Follow these rules. You needed to ceremonially wash your hands before you eat. And not only your hands, but also your cups and your pitchers and your kettles and, and more. If you didn't, you were unclean. Which didn't mean that you were dirty. didn't mean you had dirt on your body. It meant being unclean meant that They believed that you were unable to have fellowship and communion with God. That you couldn't be a part of the people of God. And it was this tradition of washing that the disciples had ignored. And that provoked the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem to ask Jesus why they didn't follow the tradition. Shouldn't Jesus be concerned about this? 
Shouldn't he be concerned because his disciples are distancing themselves from God? Cutting themselves off from the people of God? When they're doing this, they're making themselves unclean, unfit for life with God. Now see how Jesus responds to them. What he does, he takes up the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and he uses it to convict them of their sin. First of all, he pointed to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 29. He calls them a bunch of hypocrites. Hypocrites are literally those who wear a mask. That word in Greek originally meant uh, an actor, somebody who would be on the stage wearing a mask, pretending to be somebody that they're not. The Jewish leaders, these religious leaders, they wear a mask of religious respectability. But when it comes down to it, it's all a game, all a show. It's all about appearances and making yourself look good in front of others. And Isaiah had encountered the same kind of people in his day when he wrote his prophecy. They could talk well and they could talk good about honoring God. They had all the right words. They knew, they knew the religious jargon, the code. But in their hearts, they couldn't give a rip about serving God. Their worship was empty and meaningless. And when it came to living the life, they turned to the rules of men rather than the laws of God. And then Jesus puts it point blank, bluntly to them. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. The Jewish leaders put their own traditions above the commands of God and they weren't content to just do that for themselves, thinking, you know, this is my own, this is just my personal approach to the law, something like that. Now they led others to do likewise. They said, this is what you have to do. And at this point, the Lord Jesus anticipates what they're thinking. They're thinking, come on, we don't do that. Oh, yes, you do, says Jesus. And now, I'll give you an example. The example is related to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. In the Mosaic laws, not honoring your father, not honoring your mother, would result in death. Capital punishment. That's how serious God regarded disobedience to the fifth commandment. Honoring your parents, and still for today, honoring your parents is a big deal. But the Jewish rabbis weakened the fifth commandment. They undermined it. They perverted it. And here's how. The Lord Jesus gives the case of a man who has parents in need. His parents are poor and they require support from their son. They need some help. And providing that support and help is part of the fifth commandment. You honor your parents by helping them out wherever you can. But the Jewish rabbis said that if a man came into some money or some property or whatever... He could keep it for himself. He could keep his parents from getting it by simply saying the Hebrew word korban. 
Korban, which means it's a gift devoted to God. Very pious. And if he later changed his mind and decided, oh, you know, I should really help out my parents after all, and he wanted to be released from that vow, the Jewish rabbis would not allow it. And their reasoning was that whatever is devoted to God takes precedence over obligations to parents. But the fact that they even allowed this despicable practice shows that they they were clueless. They missed the point about the law of God. They did not interpret it properly. With their reasoning, they were actually declaring the word of God, the law of God, to be unlawful. They nullified it. They canceled it out. These law specialists, law experts, showed themselves to be ignorant of the law. The law said, honor your father and mother. Take that seriously. It didn't say anything about korban. And using that korban vow to evade your responsibility towards your parents. That reminds us that Adding to, taking away from the Word of God, binding beyond the Word of God is a very dangerous business. And it's something that is not approved by the Lord Jesus. Jesus then calls the crowd to Himself and instructs them further. The Jewish leaders had taught them that it's primarily external things that make a person unclean. When you eat a certain food, you become unclean, unfit for communion with God. Jesus says, no. It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And then he just leaves it at that. Just leaves it right there. Some in the crowd will hear this and some of them will understand. Many will not. And among those who did not understand were his own disciples, the twelve. And so they asked him later, when they'd gone into a house, about this parable, about the things going in and the things going out. At first, the Lord Jesus is incredulous that they wouldn't get it. He says, can't you see it? Can't you see that what comes from outside doesn't really do anything to a man's heart? It comes into his stomach, and then he says this literally in the Greek, it just goes out when you're on the toilet. It's just food. It doesn't really have anything to do with one's status before God. And then we read in brackets at the end of verse 19, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Here we see Him as the law maker. Who is He? That He has the authority to turn over the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Who can do this? But God alone. That's what we see about Jesus here. He is God and He has the right and He has the authority, the prerogative, to say that those Old Testament dietary laws have outlived their usefulness. They're no longer applicable. Under the Old Testament dietary laws, pork was unclean. Jesus says you can now enjoy bacon with your eggs and pork with your beans. 
Under the dietary laws of Leviticus, anything that swam in the water that didn't have fins and scales was unclean. Jesus says that you can now enjoy lobster with your steak. You can now enjoy shrimp with your pasta. All those laws have been lifted. They are no longer in force in the same way as they were before Jesus' coming. There's a change happening here. As we look at this at first glance, it appears that Jesus is making things easier with regards to the law. Then he goes on about what really makes a person unable to have communion and fellowship with God. It's not about the food that comes in your mouth, but about the evil that comes from your heart. Now, many times people regard Jesus as a therapist or something like a therapist. But here he comes as a surgeon with the scalpel of God's law cutting, exposing what lives in the hearts of people, also exposing what lives in our hearts. We want Jesus to give us therapy. He says that we need surgery. We want Jesus to give us a massage and and to make us feel better. He says that we need a heart transplant. And that may hurt. And it may be uncomfortable. But it's what we really need. And that's what these words at the end of our passage are all about. These words are here to, to prick us. To expose us. To make us uncomfortable. Make us squirm. This isn't pleasant. I understand that. Loved ones, that's the first use of the law. You know, we usually speak about three uses of the law of God. The first is to convict us of sin and to drive us to Christ. The second, which we usually don't give very much attention to in the church, is its civil or political use. Ordering society and civil law and order. And the third is guiding and shaping our thankfulness for our salvation in Christ. Here Christ is making, using the the, the first use of the law. It's power to point the finger at sinners and convict them. Making them despair of their own selves, anything within them. Making them despair of their own righteousness. You see, the Jews had domesticated the law of God. They tamed it. They had actually made it too easy by focusing on things that could easily be done. Focusing on the externals. Like hand washing. The Lord Jesus comes and says, People, you really don't get how hard the law of God is. In Matthew 5.48, he summarized the demand of God's law when he said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you hear that and you go, But Jesus, who can do that? Who can be perfect? Exactly. God's law demands absolute, pristine perfection. God does not grade on a curve to be accepted and to have fellowship with Him. He won't accept anything less than 100% obedience. 
And that begins not with the external things, but with what comes out of our hearts. When he was asked what happens to people who reject Christ, a very popular TV preacher and author replied, I just think that God will judge a person's heart. God's got to look at your heart. Yes, God will judge our hearts at the last day. But this TV preacher thinks that this is the good news. That we can have hope and comfort because our hearts and the hearts of others are so pure and so well-intentioned and so sincere. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you want more on the heart, here we have Jesus' words in Mark 7. You look at this list. It's a catalog of sins, inward and outward. There are evil thoughts. That's the the blanket term for every thought that breaks God's law. Think about that. My heart has conceived and committed sins that my hands have never carried out. If my sincerity counted for anything, I'd be in serious trouble with God. The next one is sexual immorality. That too is a blanket term for all kinds of sexual sins. The word in Greek is related to our English word pornography. And it covers pornography, but a lot more. Theft, which includes greed and abuse and squandering of God's gifts, failing to promote your neighbor's good wherever you can. It's murder, which Jesus says in the book of Matthew, includes hatred and bitterness towards others. Adultery. Again, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that even if you look at somebody with a a lustful glance, you're guilty of adultery. Greed, malice. Malice means having evil intentions towards others. Deceit, lying, right? Lewdness, lewdness is being obscene, making dirty jokes, so forth. Envy, slander, pride. Well, there's something, right? Pride. We all struggle with that. Foolishness. The finger of God's law is pointing right at me and you here. Convicting us. And it's not the fault of the law. The problem is in me. The problem is in you. It's in all of us. The law is not evil. We are. All these things come from within our hearts and they make us unclean, unable to have fellowship with God, unable to be members of His family, unable to have Him as our Father. What's happening here in Mark 7 is an illustration of what we read in Hebrews 4, 12-13. God says there, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
The Word of God is sharp like a sword. It's like the scalpel that exposes the disease, that exposes the gangrene within. But loved ones, it's not meant to leave us there. Our Lord Jesus didn't speak these words to make us despair, to to leave us down in our desperation. And if you stop listening at this point, you don't hear anything else I say for the rest of this sermon, and you come away and say, all he said was bad news. All he talked about was sin and misery. Loved ones, and you missed the most important part of the sermon. Listen. Our Lord Jesus didn't speak these words to make us despair and to leave us down in our desperation. He's the surgeon with the scalpel of the law, and He wants to give us life-saving surgery. It's not about killing us, but about saving us, making us rise again with Him. He wants us to hear the law here and humbly and honestly say, yes, my conscience accuses me. I've failed. I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. True. But then he also wants us to right away hear the gospel. The Lord Jesus wants us to hear his voice. Yes, brother, sister, you have failed. By yourself, you can't be right with God. You can't have Him for your Father. But here's good news. Because you have failed in everything. But I have succeeded in everything. I kept the law perfectly for you. Evil thoughts do not come out of my heart. There is no sexual immorality flowing from my heart. I've never robbed, murdered, or committed adultery, not in my external actions, nor in the intents of my heart. I did this for you, Jesus says. Greed, malice, lewdness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I made sure that they don't have a place at all in my heart, in my life. And I did all of that for you. I did that in your place. Because you couldn't. And Jesus says, not only that, but I went to the cross for you. And I bore the punishment for all the times that these last verses in Mark 7, that all the times that those verses are your story. I bore the curse. By yourself you are unclean, but with me you are made clean. You are not guilty. You are acquitted of all charges, declared righteous, Welcome to the family of God. Beloved brothers and sisters, let the Word of God do its work in you today. The Holy Spirit is using this passage to lead us again to Christ, the faithful one. The Spirit is directing us again to look outside of ourselves, fix our eyes on Him. He is our great law keeper. He is our great sin bearer. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. And you can be sure that you are clean in God's eyes. That you are not only made suitable for His family, but that you are part of His family. You are His child. And He 
is your Father. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you our weakness, sin, and inability. Of ourselves, we are all unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the light of your law. Father, we are again grateful for the Lord Jesus, the great law keeper and curse bearer. Thank you for sending him to live perfectly for us. Thank you for sending him to suffer and die for us. Lord God, we pray that you would continue working in us with your Holy Spirit so that we would constantly embrace Christ and all his merits and benefits. Father, please work in us too so that we live out of our union with Christ, that we hate sin, and that we fight against it in our hearts and lives. Please hear us in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.